the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today on the program, we'll hear from Dr. Robert Jeffress. He's the author of Invincible, Conquering the Mountains that Separate You from the Blessed Life. We'll also take a look at home DNA tests. And while some are suggesting those tests could come back to bite you, if you will. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Also, tomorrow, we'll have a conversation with Pastor Wendell Robinson. He's the uh, pastor at Mount Olivet Baptist Church. His latest book, Kingdom Moments, Hearing and Responding to the Voice of God. That's going, that's coming up on tomorrow's program. But first, some of the day's headline. No comment. The vice president dodged a question about dispersing Hurricane Ian relief based on equity, which uh, is unlawful, unconstitutional, and not moral under the current circumstances. Foundational to our economy, Native American tribes ripped the administration over their fossil fuel double standard. Native American tribes dependent on fossil fuel resources ripped the administration for its double standard, saying a war on coal is a war on the Crow. The Crow Nation's director of energy told Fox News Digital. Using a technique of coercion, the army is penalizing soldiers seeking religious accommodation to the vax mandate. And on the crisis at the border, an alarming human smuggling method is now more common as migrants try to avoid detection. The Texas Department of Public Safety, or DPS, says human smuggling attempts by aircraft are becoming more common in border states. Under legal scrutiny, the Supreme Court's new terms should bring constitutional clarity as the left turns up the heat on the justices. And by the way, if uh, time permits, we'll take a look at some of the uh, more controversial subjects that the the court will be taking up this session. Missing the mark, polls reveal that uh, the winning strategy that's been chosen by the Democrats for the midterms might be a loser for key voters. Issues like inflation, jobs and the border are of more importance to Latino voters. A new poll found a survey of about a thousand Latino registered voters conducted by NBC News and Telmundo found that only five percent believe abortion is the most important issue facing the country. Packing heat, the concealed carry insurance business is booming as more Americans arm themselves. If the uh, police aren't going to defend them, they're planning to defend themselves. Saying we've done it all or all done it, uh, Chuck Todd and Simone Sanders Townsend excused the president's Jackie Gaff on Meet the Press. We've all done it. We've all looked for deceased persons in a crowd we know to have been um, gone. Well, learning to play the game, a CNN reporter says DeSantis has been forced to play nice with institutions he has contentious relationships with. I'm not sure who specifically he's referring to. In touch with the Lord, Elvis Presley's stepbrother says Elvis spoke of God's forgiveness before his death. The king of rock and roll apparently laid down his crown. Stepbrother Billy Stanley wrote a new book that drops on October 4th titled The Faith of Elvis. Hurricane Ian's death toll has reached 77, causing $100 billion in damage. Well, the death toll there um, as of late Saturday afternoon as a result of Hurricane Ian has reached 
The uh, number 77, over twice the number reported earlier in the day, roughly a thousand people so far have been rescued from flooded areas along Florida's western coast. Uh, coast rather, The South Carolina beach community of um, Pawleys Island was among the hardest hit by the uh, uh, by Ian in that state. The Pawleys Pier was one of the least uh, four along um, uh, South Carolina's coast to be destroyed during Ian's winds and rain. Hurricane Ian was likely caused well over $100 billion in damage, including $63 billion in privately insured losses, according to the disaster model uh, model firm Karen Clark and Company, which regularly issues flash catastrophe estimates. If those numbers are borne out, that would make Ian at least the fourth costliest hurricane in U.S. history. Governor Ron DeSantis and First Lady Casey DeSantis are praising the help his state has received following the devastating aftermath of the hurricane. In just 48 hours, the state of Florida raised more than $20 million to go toward its Florida disaster fund. Vice President Harris claims humanitarian aid for Florida will be handed out based on equity. Twitter hammered the vice president for a recent speech in which he described the federal hurricane Ian relief would be based on equity and prioritizing uh, people in communities of color. Speaking to um, uh, actress Priyanka Chopra Jonas at the Democratic National Committee's Women's Leadership Forum on Friday, Harris claimed that people of color and low-income communities are most affected by natural disasters such as hurricanes, uh, Ian. Uh, Because of this, Harris described how federal relief should be given based on equity. Governor DeSantis' rapid response of Director Christina Prashaw said this is false. The vice president's rhetoric is causing undue panic and must be clarified. FEMA individual assistance is already available to all Floridians impacted by the hurricane Ian, regardless of race or background. Elon Musk said should be according to greatest need, not race or anything else. A national review weighed in in a separate tweet. Uh, Prashaw pressed Harris to correct what she said. Markets plummeted for the third straight quarter. Forbes reports that markets sank Friday to close a historically bad month and quarter with the Dow Jones industrial average closing 22 percent below its January 5 peak as investors continue to fret over tighter monetary policy and set the stage for the Dow's worst year to date performance since 2008. Stocks remain on pace for one of their worst years with the Dow, S&P and Nasdaq down 21 percent, 25 percent and 33 percent year to date, respectively. None of the indices have ended the year down more than 10 percent since 2008. The Wall Street Journal says with the central bank signaling it is uh, committed to bring inflation under control. Investors have grown fearful that its campaign of rate increases will meaningfully slow the economy. All three indexes fell for a third consecutive quarter. For the S&P 500 and NASDAQ, it was the longest quarterly losing, uh, losing streak since streaks ending in March of 2009, according to Dow Jones and market data. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break when we return. Um, In the second hour, we'll hear from Robert Jeffress. His book is titled Invincible. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Ukraine has applied for a fast-track NATO membership. Reuters reports that President Volodymyr Zelensky announced a surprise bid for fast-track membership of the NATO military alliance on Friday and ruled out talks with President Vladimir Putin striking back at Moscow after it said it had annexed four Ukrainian 
regions. Well, Zelensky signed the NATO application papers in an online video clearly intended as a forceful rebuttal to the Kremlin after Putin held a ceremony in Moscow to proclaim the four partially occupied regions as annexed Russian land. Political points out that there wasn't any indication that Ukraine's request would advance its membership hopes, which have been in limbo for years. The prospect of Ukraine joining NATO has long fueled frustration for Moscow, which regularly rails against the military alliance's eastward expansion in recent decades. Speaker Pelosi claims illegal immigrants are needed in Florida to pick crops. The New York Post uh, points out that the House Speaker caused outrage on Friday when she attempted to justify waves of illegal migration to the U.S. by claiming Florida farmers needed the new arrivals to pick the crops down there. End quote. The California Democrat made the stunning remarks during a news conference at which she agreed the U.S. has a responsibility to secure the border, but should also recognize the importance of newcomers to our nation. A Georgia judge has ruled voter ID laws are legal. Justin News, uh, just the news rather, reports that a federal judge ruled on Friday that Georgia's election integrity practice requiring voter ID and citizenship checks are legal and constitutional, rejecting arguments of racism and voter suppression from the state's Democrat nominee for governor, Stacey Abrams, just weeks before Election Day. U.S. District Judge Steve C. Jones, an Obama appointee, issued the ruling after a lengthy trial, handing a major victory to Governor Brian Kemp and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. The National Review weighs in, pointing out the lawsuit was filed by Fair Fight Action and Care in Action and initially sought a massive overhaul of the state's election system. By the time the case went to trial earlier this year, the suit focused on several specific election processes, including the state's exact match policy for voter registration applications. The groups uh, the groups argued that those attempting to register to vote have uh, run into problems and if information on the applications didn't exactly match that in driver's license or Social Security data database or if new U.S. citizens information hasn't been updated in the driver's license database. Russian soldiers have retreated from Lyman after being enriched by Ukrainian uh, forces after being encircled by Ukrainian forces. Russian uh, uh, Russia rather pulled troops out Saturday from the eastern Ukrainian city that has uh, been using uh, has been used rather as a front line hub. It was the latest victory for the Ukrainian counteroffensive that has humiliated and angered the Kremlin. The fighting comes at a pivotal moment in Russian President Vladimir Putin's war facing Ukrainians gains on the battlefield, which he frames as a U.S. orchestrated effort to destroy Russia. Putin this week heightened his threats of nuclear force and used his most aggressive anti-Western rhetoric to date. The Financial Times points out that losing Lyman, a key staging ground for Moscow's campaign in the northern Donetsk region, is a blow to the Russian president who claimed the area and three other Ukrainian provinces as Russian territory on Friday. Its capture is crucial for Ukraine's counteroffensive, which has swept from west to east with the aim of cutting the north-south supply lines that sustain Russia's campaign in the Donbass region, uh, which is comprised of Donetsk uh, and neighboring Luhansk. Well, gas prices have surged in California and elsewhere, for that matter. Gas prices have hit record highs in Southern California. The average price for a gallon of gas in L.A. County Six dollars and forty six cents. 
Orange County went down a cent to $6.42 per gallon. The average price in Ventura County was six forty per gallon. And in the Inland Empire, it was $6.32. As compared to the national average of $3.79 per gallon, California was experiencing at least a $2.58 price difference per gallon. Wall Street Journal reports that California gas prices have long been higher than the national average owing to hefty fuel taxes and climate regulations. But the difference now is the largest in at least two decades. Excuse me. Nine NATO leaders issued a statement denouncing Russia's annexation of Ukraine. The heads of nine European NATO members on Sunday issued the joint statement backing a path to membership for Ukraine in the U.S. led security alliance and calling on all 30 NATO nations to ramp up military aid for Kiev. The nine NATO countries in Central and Eastern Europe, fearful that Russia could target them next if it isn't stopped in Ukraine, urged a response to the annexation. The nine leaders demanded that Russia immediately withdraw from all occupied territories and encouraged all allies to substantially increase their military aid to Ukraine, according to the statement. The signatories also wrote that they firmly stand behind a NATO decision in 2008 over Ukraine's future membership to the alliance. At the time, NATO allies pledged that Ukraine would eventually become a member. But as that um, process stalled over the years, it seemed increasingly unlikely that Ukraine's bid would become a reality. Well, protests in Iran have entered their third week as government intensifies confrontations. Protesters rallied across Iran and strikes were reported throughout the country's Kurdish region on Saturday. And uh, as demonstrators ignited by the death of the uh, woman in police custody entered their third week, the protests sparked by the death of uh, Masa Amini, uh, Amini, rather, a 22 year old from Iranian Kurdistan, had spiraled into the biggest show of opposition to Iran's clerical authorities since 2019, with dozens killed in unrest across the country. Iran's clerical regime could face intensified international sanctions, uh, pressure over its violent response to the protests against the uh, uh, recent death in police custody of the woman of Kurdistan. Um, Origin. Iranian officials have ordered security forces to severely confront the protesters, according to an Amnesty International report that cited leaked government documents leading to a wave of violence that reportedly has left dozens dead. Their apparent brutality represents an attempt to grapple with the nationwide uproar that stands as the second major protest this year and the fifth outcry since 2017. Observers are warning uh, are being warned rather to prepare for more bulk mail ballot fraud during the 2020 election. Mail in ballots became a much bigger piece of the overall vote picture. The excuse for vastly expanding mail in balloting at the time was the covid pandemic. But the end of the pandemic hasn't stopped the mail-in balloting problem as states have institutionalized and in some cases expanded the practice. The negative results from this will be twofold. The first will be the obvious problem of increased likelihood of fraudulent votes across country. The second issue is that uh, of time. Ironically, in the world where technology has allowed for greater efficiency, the opposite seems to be occurring when it comes to multiple states' election processes. Uh, Due to the increase in mail-in balloting, it's likely that several states will not know the outcome of elections until days, if not weeks, after Election Day. It took Oregon, for example, years to get up to speed 
before uh, mail-in balloting uh, was the practice. That's not the case in some of these states that have just initiated in response to the pandemic. Instead of election results being known the night or the day after the election, the the, uh, trend is going in the opposite direction, with elections being drawn out as mail-in ballots are received and processed. This creates problems for poll workers who will be forced to work for days, straining election resources. As the bipartisan policy center's Rachel Ori observed, if you're spread thin in terms of your election workers and you have most people focused on keeping the polling places open and running, there's less resource to put towards processing mail ballots on Election Day. High school volleyball girls have been banned from the girls' locker room, but the boys are welcome. Ten girls at Randolph Union High School in Vermont They're learning the hard way that daring to object to a biological male using the girls' locker room will only get them in trouble. According to the girls, a male student who self-identifies as transgender made the girls uh, in the locker room feel uncomfortable, not merely by his presence while they uh, they were changing uh, their clothing, but by inappropriate comments he made at the time. This male student is permitted to access the girls' locker room thanks to Vermont law allowing transgender students to use whichever gender facilities they choose. When the girls objected to the male student using their locker room, the school effectively blamed the girls and began investigating them for harassment and bullying. As one of the girls explained, I feel like... Um, that uh, for stating my opinion that I don't uh, want a biological male changing with me, that I should not have harassment charges or bullying charges. They should all be dropped. Well, the school suggested the girls could change in a private single stall bathroom. But as the student went on to explain, they want all the girls who feel uncomfortable. So pretty much 10 girls to get changed in a single stall bathroom, which would take over 30 minutes where if one person got changed separately, the male, the biological and physical male, it would take a minute, like no extra time, end quote. Well, accommodating deviancy invariably ends in the sacrificing of decency, they went on to say. Ukraine has applied for NATO membership. Whether or not they get it in a timely fashion, well, it's been years in the making. The House sent a stopgap funding bill to avoid a government shutdown to President Biden's desk. And the president thanked the U.S. Coast Guard rescue swimmer for saving lives as Hurricane Ian battered Florida, a service member who will be discharged for not having a COVID-19 vaccine, according to a report. Thanks for being a hero. Thanks for performing. You're fired. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour, Pastor Robert Jeffress, Invincible, Conquering the Mountains that Separate You from the Blessed Life. Hundreds of DHS employees took pandemic unemployment aid, even though they were working. And the Supreme Court is set to hear major culture wars cases this term. We'll talk about some of them later in the program. The Fed's preferred economic gouge shows inflation. I should say gauge shows inflation accelerated even more than expected in August. The man who ran over Republican teen in North Dakota has now been charged with felony murder. And California just made it legal for minors to travel there for other uh, from other states to get cross-sex drugs and surgery without their parents' consent. Cornell has restored a Lincoln bust after its removal prompted complaints. And a Houston couple accidentally gets a shipment of M- <laughs> M16s after ordering gun storage cases online. Well, the call-up of hundreds of thousands of Russian reservists is not going well. Protests have erupted in recent days in the region of 
uh, Dagestan and elsewhere over Vladimir Putin's conscription decree, with video showing women demanding answers from the police and crowds clashing with the authorities. Russians have gone beyond protesting to attack recruitment officers. Thousands have been arrested across the country since last week, and many are leaving the country altogether. 1789 on this day in history, President George Washington declares November 26th, 1789, a day of Thanksgiving to express gratitude for the creation of the United States of America. 1863, President Abraham Lincoln proclaims the last Thursday of November to be Thanksgiving Day. 1941, Adolf Hitler declares in a speech in Berlin that Russia is broken and would never rise again. 1955, Captain Kangaroo and the Mickey Mouse Club, they premiere on CBS and ABC, respectively. 1981, Irish nationalists at the Mays Prison near Belfast, Northern Ireland, end seven months of hunger strikes that claimed 10 lives. 1991, Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton enters the race for the Democratic presidential nomination. 1995, a Los Angeles jury finds O.J. Simpson not guilty of the 1994 slayings of his former wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ronald Goldman. However, Simpson would be found liable for damages at a separate civil trial. 2001, the Senate approves an agreement normalizing trade between the United States and Vietnam. 2008, again, O.J. Simpson in the news. He's found guilty of robbing two sports memorabilia dealers at gunpoint in a Las Vegas hotel room. Simpson would later be sentenced to nine to 33 years in prison and ultimately granted parole in July of 2017 and released in October that same year. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, researchers at Columbia University present evidence that astronomers for the first time may have found a moon outside our solar system orbiting a planet as big as Jupiter, about 8,000 light years away. Well, the Supreme Court began hearing cases for its new term today following its customary summer recess. If this term is anything like the last one, conservatives and constitutionalists will rejoice. In the uh, most recent term, conservatives achieved secured massive wins on abortion with Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, gun rights with New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, Inc. versus Bruin, and religious liberty in Carson versus Mackin and the Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, plus another key win on rolling back the administrative state, West Virginia versus EPA. Well, now with such grotesque precedents as Roe versus Wade and Lemon versus Kurtzman properly overturned, will the Supreme Court continue to move rightward? It's a big question. Put another way, was the 2021-2022 term a mere blip on the radar or the beginning of a broader conservative legal restoration? Well, although it's unclear or there are fewer culture war-centric cases on the docket this term than last, there's still reason for cautious optimism in some of the marquee impending cases. And among them, nine cases the Supreme Court will hear uh, students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard College and Students for Fair Admission versus UNC. The court's going to consider whether to overturn its 2003 decision and Grutter versus Bollinger. In a pair of cases that will be argued on the 31st of this month, the challenger in both cases is a nonprofit group representing students and parents that sued both Harvard and the University of North Carolina, alleging that their race conscious admissions programs primarily benefit black applicants, largely at the expense of Asian American applicants. For example, assuming similar credentials as an an Asian American with a 25 percent chance of admission to Harvard would see his chances rise 35 percent. If he were white, 75 percent if he were Hispanic and 95 percent 
if he were African-American. The challengers assert that the University of North Carolina, a public university, is violating the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. They contend that Harvard College is violating Title VII, or rather Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, or national origin by any educational program that receives money from the federal government, thereby banning race-based admissions that, if done by a public university, would violate the Equal Protection Clause. The cases had originally been consolidated, but the court separated them so that the newest justice, Katanji Brown Jackson, who served at Harvard's Board of uh, of Overseers can participate in the consideration of the North Carolina case, but not the Harvard case. In Grutter, the court had uh, held that the University of Michigan Law School's race-conscious admissions program did not violate the 14th Amendment or Title VI, determining that such programs are permissible so long as the use uh, is uh, of race is narrowly tailored to further a compelling government interest. The court defined that as the need to obtain the educational benefits that flow from a diverse student body. In doing so, however, the court stated that a narrowly tailored program must be flexible and non-mechanical and cannot be a de facto a quota system. Further, the court held that school administrators must in good faith consider race neutral alternatives to achieve that objective. The challengers argue that Harvard and UNC have flunked those tests. Again, arguments heard later this month. There's also Moore versus Harper. The court's going to hear a significant election law case out of North Carolina. In it, the liberal North Carolina Supreme Court overturned the congressional map that had been adopted by the conservative North Carolina legislature, concluding that it was the result of partisan gerrymandering. Imagine that partisan gerrymandering in a state legislature. Well, in 2019, in Ruco versus Common Cause, the Supreme Court held that partisan gerrymandering does not violate the U.S. Constitution. But here, the state Supreme Court held that the map adopted by the legislature violated that voting power and substantially equal legislative representative representation, rather, as well as their right to free elections. Well, the justices will decide whether the state court's ruling violates the elections clause, which provides that the manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. The issue is particularly significant because executive branch officials and state and federal judges issued opinions that altered existing election laws and procedures in various states, using the COVID-19 pandemic as their excuse. During the 2020 election, without seeking or obtaining the approval of the state legislatures in those states. Well, in 2020, the justices turned down a request by Pennsylvania Republicans to fast track their challenge to a Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling that required state election officials to extend the deadline for counting mail-in ballots. In an opinion that accompanied the court's order, Justice Samuel Alito, joined by Justices uh, Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch, suggested that the state Supreme Court's decision likely violated the Constitution. The case has not yet been set for oral arguments, but they will be set and heard. Also, 303 Creative versus Elenis. Lori Smith owns a graphic design firm in Colorado and wants to expand her business to include wedding websites. Although she's willing to create graphics or design websites for all people, regardless of their orientation, Smith does not want to design websites for same-sex weddings because she believes that same-sex marriage conflicts with God's will and she wants to uh, to post a message on her uh, own website to explain that. 
Well, she's challenged a Colorado law that prohibits businesses that are open to the public from discriminating against gay people or announcing their intent to do so. Well, this is the same Colorado law that was applied to and was challenged by Jack Phillips, the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop in Lakewood, Colorado, when local authorities tried to punish him for refusing to bake a custom wedding cake for a same-sex couple because it violated his sincerely held religious beliefs. Well, Phillips argued that the law violated his rights under the free exercise clause and the First Amendment. And, well, you probably know the rest of that story. In that case, the Supreme Court ducked the main issue by holding that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, which considered the matter, displayed impermissible hostility to his sincerely held religious beliefs and that he was entitled to a hearing before a neutral decision maker. Well, in this new case, Smith argues she is being forced to express tacit support for same-sex marriages and prohibited from explaining why she declines to develop websites for same-sex weddings. It's expected that the... uh, The court will take up the case and address the underlying issue, but with a twist. While the justices agreed to take up Smith's claim under the free speech clause, they declined to review two other questions, namely whether requiring Smith to create custom websites for same-sex couples violates the free exercise clause and whether the Supreme Court should overrule its 1990 decision in Employment Division versus Smith, which held that government actions usually do not violate the free exercise clause as long as they are neutral and applied to everyone. The case has not yet been set for oral arguments. These are some of the cases that the U.S. Supreme Court will be taking up in this new term. We'll continue to look at several others when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour, Pastor Robert Jeffress, author of Invincible, will also take a look at how your Home DNA test could be used against you. That's coming up in the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. We've been looking at some of the Supreme Court cases they'll be hearing in this term that began today with a new member. There's also the case of Merrill versus Milligan. On October 4th, the court will hear oral arguments in a case that will decide whether the state of Alabama's 2021 congressional redistricting plan violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which prohibits voting practices or procedures that discriminate on the basis of race. A panel of federal judges in January ordered the state to draw a new map with two majority black districts, concluding that the state's original plan, which contained only one such district, likely violated Section 2. A divided Supreme Court put that order on hold, allowing the state to implement its original plan for the 2022 midterm elections and set the case for oral argument. There's also U.S. versus Texas. Uh, This case poses a new challenge by a red state to a Biden administration immigration policy. Last term, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the administration when it sought to terminate the remain in Mexico policy that was implemented during the Trump administration. Well, in this case, Texas and Louisiana are challenging a new policy that prioritizes certain groups of illegal aliens for arrest and deportation. Well, in September of last year, a memorandum, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, outlined the administration's immigration enforcement priorities. The DHS argues that while there are more than 11 million illegal aliens in the United States who are subject to deportation, the government does not have the resources to apprehend and deport all of them. The memorandum instructs immigration officials to prioritize cases involving suspected terrorists, people who committed serious crimes, and those caught at the border. The state claimed that 
uh, to be suffering financial harm as a result of this new policy by, for example, requiring them to keep non-citizens in state prisons for longer than they otherwise would. They argue that the policy conflicts with various statutory requirements in the Immigration and Nationality Act. Also, they contend the administration failed to comply with the Administrative Procedures Act in that it did not provide the public with notice of or an opportunity to comment on its new enforcement priorities, and it did not properly consider the high rate of um, absorption, um, recidivism among criminal aliens and aliens with final orders of removal in reaching its conclusions. This case, uh, like many others, has not yet uh, been set for oral arguments. Another uh, case to watch in the Supreme Court, Sackett versus Environmental Protection Agency. Mr. and Mrs. Sackett, Mike and Chantel, are making their second trip to the high court as they pursue their longstanding dream of building a home on a vacant parcel of land they own near Priest Lake, Idaho. Well, in 2007, the Sacketts filled in a portion of their land with dirt and uh, and rock in preparation for construction. Well, a short time later, the EPA issued an order, and you might remember this case, it's been around for a while, alleging that the Sacketts had violated the Clean Water Act by filling in the parcel without first obtaining a permit. Although the lot has no surface water that is connected to any other body of water, the EPA contends the Sacketts lot contains wetlands that qualify as navigable waters under the Clean Air Act, or excuse me, the Clean Water Act. Well, the EPA demanded that the Sacketts remove the fill dirt and restore the parcel to its original condition. The Sacketts filed a lawsuit, but the lower courts dismissed it, holding that until the EPA undertakes an enforcement action, the suit is premature. In 2012, however, a unanimous Supreme Court ruled uh, in favor of the Sacketts that the EPA's compliance order constituted a final agency action that was subject to judicial review. So they didn't decide the case, but just that it was subject to judicial review. In 2006, in Rapinoe's versus United States, the Supreme Court held that the Clean Water Act does not regulate all wetlands, but it did establish a definitive standard for determining which wetlands qualify. Well, a plurality of opinion by then Justice Antonin Scalia argued that only those wetlands that have a continuous connection to other regulated waters qualify. While Justice Anthony Kennedy, in a concurring opinion, argued that a wetland could qualify for regulation so long as it bears a significant nexus with traditional navigable waters. On remand, the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against the Sacketts, adopting the broader, more permissive significant nexus case advocated by Kennedy. Well, on the 3rd of October, the justices... Um, well, in fact, that's today. They heard arguments from a council on whether the Ninth Circuit used the proper test for determining whether wetlands are waters of the United States under the act. So this has been going on now for years. Then there's National Pork Producers Council versus Ross. As the most populous state with the biggest um, economy, California has regulations that often have outsized influence on, if not basically dictate, how businesses across the country will operate. This is one of those cases. On the 11th of October, the justices will take up a challenge to a California law that makes the sale of pork in California contingent on compliance with conditions that virtually no existing commercial farms meet, specifically that the pig from which the pork derives um, was born to a sow 
who was housed in a 24 square foot uh, space and could turn around freely without touching any barriers. Well, while that may be fine or perhaps not with California pork farmers, it's not fine with out of state farmers and other industry representatives who produce 99 percent of the pork that is consumed in the Golden State. Well, through this uh, Fair Trade Association, those out-of-state producers went to court alleging that the restrictive law violates the so-called Dormant Commerce Clause, a legal doctrine inferred from the Commerce Clause and designed to prevent state protectionism that prohibits state legislation that discriminates against or unduly burdens interstate commerce. And while the Ninth Circuit agreed that the law would require pervasive changes to the pork production industry nationwide, it held that the challenges had failed to make out a claim for a violation of their constitutional rights. One justice to watch in this case will be Justice Thomas, who has criticized the Dormant Commerce Clause in past opinions, including in his dissent in Camp's newfound um, Town versus Harrison decision, in which he wrote that the negative Commerce Clause has no basis in the text of the Constitution and makes little sense and has proved virtually unworkable in application. This may be the case, making that point. And finally, Warhol Foundation for Visual Arts versus Goldsmith. Again, these are some of the cases the Supreme Court will uh, be hearing in this uh, new term. The well-known late pop artist Andy Warhol is once said to have observed that in the future, everybody will be world famous in 15 minutes. Well, 35 years after Warhol's passing, the court will consider whether Warhol stole some of the fame from Lynn Goldsmith by infringing her copyright on a photograph that she took of rock star Prince that appeared in Vanity Fair, which paid a licensing fee to use the image. Well, before he died, Warhol created a series of images of Prince from that photograph, but altered the image by cropping and coloring it. Goldsmith was unaware of that uh, Vanity Fair, published an article using one of those images shortly after Prince's death in 2016, which led to her lawsuit against the foundation that holds the copyright to all of Warhol's images. Well, the court will decide whether the second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which sided with Goldsmith, the artist, is uh, right or whether, as the foundation argues, Warhol's alterations were sufficiently transformative to constitute a fair use. Some of the cases the Supreme Court will take up. By the way, the Supreme Court has declined to hear challenges to health care worker vaccine mandates. On Monday, they declined to hear a legal challenge to the Biden administration's vaccine mandate for health care workers at facilities that receive federal funds. They rejected an appeal submitted by the plaintiffs, including 10 mostly Republican-controlled states, after a lower court declined to hear their petition. The vast majority of health care workers nationwide, 10.4 million, are subject to the mandate, although there are medical and religious exemptions. The case is Missouri versus Biden. In their lawsuit, the states allege that the mandate has exacerbated worker shortages in hospitals and is now devastating small rural community-based health care facilities and systems throughout the states. The Supreme Court will not hear that case. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, Robert Jeffress, Invincible, the title of his book. We'll also tell you how your home DNA test could be used against you. That's all coming up. Well, there's losing a lawsuit, and then there's what happened to Stacey Abrams in federal court last week. Abrams, of course, has become a progressive rock star thanks to her insistence that Georgia's election system is... Um, 
uh, racially motivated and voter suppression is the rule. She denied the legitimacy of her 2018 defeat in her first run for governor based on these claims. And she's been um, hailed in the press as a savior of American democracy because she is so committed to fighting the state's supposedly malign practices. Well, now Federal District Judge Steve Jones, uh, an Obama appointee, has shredded key contentions in her long-running argument against Georgia. In the case, a group founded by Abrams, uh, Fair Fight Action, alleged all manner of violations of the Constitution and the Voting Rights Act in a comprehensive, careful, and rhetorically unadorned 288-page decision. Jones would have uh, none of it, the, the judge, Uh, He ruled against fair fight action and the other plaintiff on all counts. The case began in the immediate aftermath of the 2018 election. Elements of the case fell away as Georgia made changes in its election law in 2019. But central claims that Abrams had relied on to maintain that she was cheated, an assertion almost universally accepted by her party, were still at issue. Jones swatted them away based on repeated findings that no actual voters had been harmed and that the practice in question were reasonable. The case centered on... On several things, the allegedly inadequate training of election workers, regardless of how to um, rather regarding how to handle the tricky matter of canceling an absentee ballot, absentee ballot when someone who had requested such a ballot decided he or she wanted to vote in person. The so-called exact match requirement that um, information in registration applications line up with other information with the state and the state's management of the voter rolls especially to ensure against felons voting and duplicate registrations. On the absentee ballot issues, the Secretary of State's office failed to update training manuals in 2020 to reflect changes in this process passed in 2019. The manuals were none the uh, uh, were a nothing burger, according to critics, though. There were also uh, all sorts of other forms of uh, training for official and poll officials and poll workers. And since county superintendents received their training with the manuals upon their initial service, Certification and many were certified prior to 2020. The outdated guides were irrelevant. Well, the judge writes there's no connection between the materials and the actual voter issue. Indeed, of the seven voters the plaintiff presented who had trouble at polling places, six of them still got to vote. The one who didn't, a very brief 15 minute window to vote because uh, that's the limit time uh, that her um, senior care facility allotted to her. So she had to leave, but probably could have voted if she could had remained longer. She couldn't get it uh, sorted out in the polling place or at the polling place at that time. Jim Crow, it was not. Uh, bottom line, Stacey Abrams, who is seeking to be the next governor of Georgia, lost her bid in court, suggesting that she had uh, been robbed of that election. Now, interestingly enough, she wasn't ridiculed for that um, that claim by those who ridicule others who claim the uh, the last election, presidential election, was lost. Now, there are some differences, but nonetheless, it depends on who you are, whether or not those claims are taken seriously. Meanwhile, California's COVID misinformation bill is chilling. That's according to Jonathan Turley. He's no conservative um, commentator. Uh, he uh, said uh, in reaction to Governor Gavin Newsom's signing of a bill policing California doctors on the spread of COVID uh, misinformation to patients on uh, America reports that it is, in fact, dangerous and chilling. California's new bill, which will discipline doctors for spreading COVID misinformation, is a chilling indication of the Democrats' position toward free speech in the state. The um, George Washington University law professor Jonathan Turley said California Governor Newsom on Monday signed what some are calling the most controversial bill to come out of the pandemic, which seeks to punish doctors and possibly suspend their medical license 
for spreading misinformation to patients on key issues, including vaccinations and medications. Now, misinformation. Turley, uh, he's a legal scholar. He ripped the legislation in an appearance on America Reports later Monday, calling the policy dangerous and its implications chilling. Quoting Turley, this law is chilling. And what it says about free speech in California is these doctors are being told that if they are viewed as spreading misinformation, it will be considered unprofessional conduct, threatening their very license. Many issues like mask and mandate efficacy are all being cited as areas where uh, they want to stop misinformation. Those are all areas where people were banned from social media, making statements that are now considered to the uh, matter to be matters of good faith issues that are worth debating. So the line of information and misinformation changes. Turley noted that the global consensus on masks and vaccines has drastically evolved since the pandemic's onset, pointing to medical professionals and others who were barred from social media platforms for raising questions, many of which proved to be right. Back then, when people questioned whether masks were effective, they were barred. And under this law, presumably, you could have used um, this law to threaten their license. But what was really essential about those dissenters is they forced discussion and some proved to be right. Well, Governor Gavin Newsom uh, also signed into law a bill making California a sanctuary for children seeking gender transition treatment across state lines. State Senator Scott Weirer of San Francisco introduced the trans refuge bill last year and it cleared the California state legislature a month ago. It essentially, according to one observer, um, awards the governor custody of children with gender dysphoria. California's dangerous and extreme new law is the latest in an onslaught of attacks against parental rights and a demonstration of just how far some governments are willing to go to replace parents as the ultimate decision makers of what's best for their children. That's a quote from Alliance Defending Freedom Senior Counsel Emily Cow on Friday in a prepared statement. Once the law takes effect on the 1st of January, California courts may take custody of kids who are seeking gender transition treatment out of state and enroll them in California's foster care system. California doctors will be able to offer puberty blockers, hormone therapy and gender reassignment surgeries to minors without their parents' knowledge or consent. When state leaders uh, think that they have a right to interfere in the business of uh, another state, that's a serious problem. The Family Research Council senior fellow Meg Killigan said on um, on Monday. But now they're asserting a right to interfere in my family life. They're starting uh, they're stating rather that they have a right to take custody of my child who could potentially run away to California. The California measure uh, wouldn't have um, gone into effect without Newsom's signature, but he did take the step to actually sign it into law. Uh, the fact that the governor signed it, it's uh, she noted, indicates his complete and total support for this idea that a child could be born in the wrong body and apparently to the wrong parents. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and up next, a conversation I had with Robert Jeffress. He's the author of Invincible, Conquering the Mountains that Separate You from the Blessed Life. We'll also talk later in the program about your um, home DNA test and how it could be used against you. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I've been looking forward to the conversation we're about to have with Dr. Robert Jeffress. He points out in his book that everyone has a mountain to conquer, something that blocks our way of truth and stands between us and the life God intends for us to live. Well, in his newest book titled Invincible, Conquering the Mountains that Separate You from the Blessed Life, best-selling author, television and radio host and pastor Dr. Robert Jeffress, he equips readers with biblical insights and practical tools to help them conquer 10 of life's most difficult mountains so that they can fully live the blessed life that God has. Everyone, every one of us has faced at least one of these 10 mountains. Um, and he explores in the book all 10 of them. I'll tell you more about that in just a few moments. Um, if you ever hope to conquer these mountains and experience the blessed life God wants us to live, then we have to step out in faith with our eyes fully fixed on the one whose presence causes mountains to melt like wax. Well, I'm just delighted to have back once again Dr. Robert Jeffress. He's senior pastor of the 15,000-member First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. He's a Fox News contributor. His daily radio program, Pathway to Victory, is heard on more than 930 stations nationwide. And his weekly television program is seen on thousands of cable systems and stations in the U.S. and in nearly 200 countries around the world. Known for his bold biblical stands on cultural issues, uh, Dr. Jeffress has been interviewed on more than 3,000 radio and television programs, well, maybe 3,001. We're glad to have, uh, have you with us, Dr. Jeffress. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be back with you, Georgine. I don't know how you, how you have time to do a radio interview, but I'm grateful that you're with us. Oh, I look forward <laughs> to it all day. Now, um, you use the word in the title of the book, Invincible. That is such a big word. Can you define it in the context of a believer who is walking by faith uh, and has overcome the mountains that you write about in this book? What does it mean to be invincible, and is, is that possible? Well, it is possible, and it's really an attitude I think Paul describes in Romans eight thirty seven when he said, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is not a positive-thinking mumbo-jumbo book. It's a realistic book about obstacles we're all facing, especially, Georgine, during these last 18 months Mm -hmm. of this pandemic. Mountains like loneliness, uh, anxiety, fear, grief. We've all experienced these things. And, you know, Jesus said, if you have faith as tiny as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Now, let's be honest. He wasn't speaking literally, but he was speaking truthfully. The fact is, these very real obstacles that separate us from the life God wants us to uh, to experience, these obstacles, we can't get rid of them once and all for all. There's no one-time prayer, one thing uh, that we can do that will remove anxiety from our life forever. We may not be able to rid ourselves of these mountains, but we can conquer them before they conquer us. And that's what the book Invincible about. What does it look like to partner with God to move the mountains that you write about, uh, the mountains that we experience that's common to believers? Well, you know, the fact is, uh, there's only one thing that God says you cannot participate in at all, and that's your salvation. We are saved by God's grace Mm -hmm. received through faith. But everything else worthwhile in our life, frankly, is a cooperative effort between God and us. 
God doesn't say, you know, give everything to me and uh, you don't have to do anything. Remember, he said to the Israelites, I'm going to give you the promised land, but you're going to have to fight for every square inch of it. And so I talk about in this book, these different 10 mountains, they all are different sizes. They require different skills to be able to conquer. But again, with God, all things are possible. Amen. Well, early in the book, you write about a recent mountain you and your family faced. Tell us a bit about that and how you were guided to respond to that challenge. Well, one of the mountains we talk about is grief. This has been Mm -hmm. a time of loss that many people have experienced. And I told about a story. Our own daughter, Julia, she went through three miscarriages, one right after another. It's a painful experience. And one day she said, Dad, I just want you to know uh, Ryan, her husband, and I are uh, praying for triplets, one life to replace every life that was lost. And Georgine, being the great man of faith I am, I said, Julia, don't pray that way. (laughs) You're just (laughs) setting yourself up for disappointment. We don't have a history of multiple births in our family. And I'll never forget what she said. She said, Dad, if you want to see God do big things, you have to pray big things. And she and her husband prayed big things. God answered that prayer with triplets. And uh, I'm not saying God answers every prayer in that same way, but we have to be bold enough to ask God for what is really in our heart and trust Him for the answer. Well, in the book, um, you write about uh, the, the mountains that we uh, we face. You examine how to move from doubt to faith, from guilt to repentance, from anxiety to peace, from discouragement to hope, from fear to courage, from bitterness to forgiveness, from materialism to contentment, loneliness, loneliness rather, to companionship, from lust to purity, and from grief to acceptance. These are such common experiences that oftentimes leave the believer uncertain about how to proceed and whether or not they're mountains that can um, that can be climbed or or uh, put aside so that we can enjoy, as you uh, put it in the book, you can enjoy what God has in mind for us, that blessed life. Well, that's right. And, you know, just one of those mountains, I think. So many people are dealing with anxiety. Uh, Experts tell us anxiety is at an all-time high. And again, it's not enough, Georgine, to tell people, well, just don't worry. Don't worry. That's like telling somebody, don't think about a pink elephant. Well, that's all they're going to think about. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they've got to replace one negative activity with a positive one. Paul said, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. And I tell in the book Invincible, uh, my friend David Jeremiah, has a great suggestion. He says, take out a piece of paper, write at the top of it, my worry list, and make a list of everything you're worrying about. It may take two or three pages, but once you have finished that list, take your pen, scratch out the worry, a word worry, and insert the word prayer. Turn your worry list into your prayer list. And that's what Paul is saying. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. And the promise is the peace of God shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Well, that seems like like such a simple thing when we pray about the things that concern us. How does God uh, how does God use those prayers to change what is affecting some 40 million uh, adults into a life of faith and blessing that we all long for? Well, again, worry isn't something we conquer once and for all, but 
but it's uh, something that has to be dealt with sometimes on a daily, if not hourly, basis. And uh, I think we need to realize, you know, some kind. Sometimes our concern is well placed. It can come because of a neglected responsibility. Maybe you haven't been to the dentist for two years, and you're worried you have a cavity. Well, go to the dentist. I mean, that's one way to alleviate mm-hmm. worry. Sometimes worry comes from guilt that is unconfessed. But sometimes, Georgine, it comes from Satan himself. You know, um, I, I read a study one time that said 92% of the things we worry about never come to pass. And that's just like Satan. He is a liar. He's the father of all lies, Jesus said. And we need to confront his lies with the truth. In your first chapter, you take on moving from doubt to faith. Um, You also uh, make a distinction between doubt and unbelief. Can you talk a bit about that chapter and how we can move from doubt to faith? Well, again, this has been a season when people have had doubts about a lot of things. Yes. A lot of their beliefs have been challenged. And the Bible does draw a distinction between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is natural. I mean, just trying to do business with an invisible God causes us to doubt sometimes. Jesus never condemned sincere questions that people have. But what he did condemn was a final conclusion, unbelief, that doubts God and his word. And what's important, Georgine, is not to allow seeds of develop seeds of doubt doubt to develop into unbelief and i like what one person said you know doubt is like a mushroom it grows best in the darkness and one way to overcome the natural doubt we have is to get back engaged with other christians in a church setting don't allow yourself to be isolated and therefore defeated by satan like solomon said two are better than one and a cord of three strands is not easily broken well, let me just take the opportunity to ask you about remote worship. I know for it may not be the case in Texas, but for many, um, doing a church from home, watching it on a screen has replaced actually going and returning to a congregation here in the Pacific Northwest. Things are opening up and people are now um, welcome to go back to their churches. What do you say to the one who has kind of gotten used to church in their pajamas in the living room with a cup of coffee as opposed to? A fellowship in which you are in close proximity with uh, fellow believers. Look, I'm a strong believer in the internet worship, and we've done it in our church. And this, uh, last Sunday, we had 400,000 people watching our services. But that is a cheap substitute for the real thing. I would tell people, you know, we're Christians. God designed us to be kind of like those two porcupines in northern Canada that huddled together to keep warm. They needed each other, even though they needled each other. And <laughs> the fact is, we as Christians need the touch, even if it's not always pleasant, of other Christians. Hebrews 10 says, don't forsake the assembling together of yourselves, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more. And I would just encourage people, get back into church as soon as you can, as safely as you can. Being a Christian doesn't mean being stupid. We still take precautions in our church, but we shouldn't let us at this point rob us of the need we have to be Absolutely. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Dr. Robert Jeffress. His latest book is titled Invincible, Conquering the Mountains That Separate You from the Blessed Life. It's published by Baker Books. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Robert Jeffress. He's senior pastor of the 15,000-member First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. His daily radio program, Pathway to Victory, is heard on more than 930 stations nationwide, and his weekly television program is seen on thousands of cable systems and stations in the U.S. and in nearly 200 countries around the world. He's the author of more than 20 books, including Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, A Place called heaven and courageous his latest book is titled invincible conquering the mountains that separate you from the blessed life and it he um uh he ta- writes about the most difficult mountains that can separate us from the blessed life that god has in store for us and every chapter will equip you with biblical insights and practical tools so that you can conquer it and come out stronger on the other side well this is uh, such a timely book because we are struggling with so many things that have uh, over the last 18 months changed what um, was more natural or at least familiar to us. In Invincible, you uh, write about the mountain of fear the Israelites faced as they were approaching the promised land. What did the mountain look like for them and how did they overcome it? What can we take from their adventure? You know, the one thing for the Israelites that separated them from the promised land was fear. Remember, uh, God told them to send the 12 spies in. Many people missed that point that God sent them in there. And they came back, interestingly, with the same report. Uh, The report was it was great land flowing with milk and honey. There were giants in the land. They were mammoth. They differed, though, in their conclusion. Ten said the giants are too big uh, for us to take. Two said we can take them. The difference was they had different standards of comparisons. The ten who voted no compared the giants to their own strength. The two, Caleb and Joshua, who said yes, were comparing the giants to God's stature. And that's the problem with most of us. Most of us measure our problems by our own abilities, our own resources, and we're always going to come up lacking. Georgine, I would use this illustration. Uh, you know, the tallest building in the world is in Dubai. I think it's like 2,700 feet tall. It's a mammoth skyscraper. But compared to Mount Everest, that's 29,000 feet tall, it's nothing but a molehill. The problem is with most of us, we want to turn our molehills into a mountain. God says, if you'll trust me, I'll turn your mountain into a molehill. A matter of perspective (laughs) and to whom you are are looking. Now, following and during this COVID-19 pandemic, loneliness is at an all-time high. It didn't begin there, but it certainly has been exacerbated by it. What practical advice can you share with our listeners who want to move from loneliness to companionship in an environment in which we're discouraged from embracing one another? Well, you know, uh, we talked about loneliness a little bit before the break. I would just start with this. First of all, recognize the fact that we all need other people. Now, this is going to shock some of your listeners, and I want them to hear me completely before they turn off the radio. The fact is, a relationship with God is not enough to satisfy all of your emotional needs. The reason I can say that with confidence is God said that. God said it to Adam. 
He had a perfect relationship with him in the garden before the uh, sin came into the world. But he said to Adam, Adam, it's not good for a person like you to be alone. I will create another human being, a helper suitable for you. We are human beings. We're spirit beings, yes, but we're humans who need one another. God designed it that way. And so I think it starts with the realization, Georgine, that we really do need each other. And then I would just encourage people to understand there are different levels of friendship and uh, companionship, you know, acquaintances, casual friends, close friends, forever friends. But the best place to meet all of those people, I think, is in the church. And that's why every believer needs to be plugged in to a church, to a small group where they can minister to one another and be ministered to by one another. We touched on this a bit earlier in our conversation as well, but in the last chapter of the book, you walk readers through the path from grief to acceptance. We've lost loved ones and friends and co-workers to COVID-19, and it has uh, made us more acutely aware of our own mortality and perhaps uh, given us a glimpse of a- eternity that we might not otherwise consider. Can you talk us uh, through that journey from grief yeah. to acceptance? Well, it, anytime you have a significant loss, there's grieving, whether it's the loss of a another person, the loss of a job. I think, uh, Georgine, I've seen people just grieve over the loss of time. They felt like mm-hmm. these last two years in some ways have been lost. And uh, I get the question as a pastor, well, when will I start feeling normal again? And I try to say gently, probably never. Uh, there's a new normal, though, that you'll experience that can be uh, as good as, if not better, than the old normal. And uh, we have to understand grief really is a process you go through. Jesus went through it with his friend uh, Lazarus, who was dead, even though Jesus knew what he was about to do with Lazarus. He grieved. He wept over the death of Lazarus. And uh, we can't rush through the process of grief. I tell people grief is like going into a dark tunnel. The bad news is it's dark, it's terrifying, it's lonely. The good news is once you've started in that tunnel of grief, you're already on the way out of it. And as the psalmist said, joy endures the evening, but joy comes in the morning. Mm, Thank the Lord for that. Are there any words of encouragement on God's promises and moving mountains and what, what life is like on the other side of the mountain that we have conquered that you'd like to share with our listeners? I would just like to remind them of what Jesus said. He said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. He gave a very honest assessment. He talked about pestilence, which is another word for pandemic. He talked about wars and rumors of wars. He talked about civil unrest. He talked about all of these things we've experienced. In this world, that's part and parcel of living in a sin-filled world. But he added the word, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And that's what invincible is. We don't have to allow these mountains to conquer us. With God, all things are possible. And I encourage people to pick up a copy of the book. Lots of people are using it in a group study. Trust me, when you announce you're going to be talking about how to conquer loneliness, grief, worry, fear, uh, people want to hear that. So they can pick up a copy and use it as a group study as well as an individual book. Yeah, absolutely. And I always ask the question, uh, is there a particular way that, that listeners can find a copy of Invincible? Because I know they're going to want it. 
well, thank you for having me so much. They can get it at Amazon.com. That's the easiest way, or Christian Books, uh, or uh, any uh, other major e-tailer or retailer right now. I think Hobby Lobby, all Hobby Lobbies have them. Well, once again, I so appreciate the time that you take to engage in conversation. You have such a busy schedule, so I'm grateful for that. And I thank you for taking the time to minister to and encourage the body of Christ with this and so many of your books. This book in particular, Invincible, Conquering the Mountains that Separate You from the Blessed Life. Thank you, Dr. Jeffress. Always a joy to be with you, Georgine. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Again, the chapters in the book, Moving from Doubt to Faith, From Guilt to Repentance, from anxiety to peace, discouragement to hope, moving from fear to courage, moving from bitterness to forgiveness, from materialism to contentment, moving from loneliness to companionship, from lust to purity, and from grief to acceptance. And then his last chapter has to do with the mountain behind you, because oftentimes we look behind us. I'm reminded of the freedom that Israel enjoyed when uh, the the waters were parted and they were free from slavery in Egypt, and yet they longed for the leeks and onions they enjoyed there. Now, they apparently forgot everything that went along with those leeks and onions. And we sometimes look back and remember aspects of where we have been that we long for. So his last chapter deals with uh, the mountain behind you. Uh, along with the other practical elements of the book. Again, Invincible, Conquering the Mountains that Separate You from the Blessed Life, published by Baker Books. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Uh, just one quick heads up tomorrow on the program, a conversation with Pastor Wendell Robinson. He's the pastor of Mount Olivet Baptist Church. He has been for a little while, but through the pandemic, you may have lost it in the shuffle. He's also the author of a new book, Kingdom Moments, Hearing and Responding to the Voice of God. We'll not only talk with him about the book, but about his new role as the pastor, the senior pastor at Mount Olivet Church. Well, I read with interest a headline that I thought, at least initially, might be hyperbole. It was in Newsmax magazine. Home DNA tests could be used to kill Americans. Well, I thought, how could that be? Well, Bill Hoffman points out that there's no denying that those DNA test kits that help you locate obscure or long lost family relations can be a lot of fun. But startling new evidence suggests the genetic data that uh, you reveal when you spit into a tube, you mail it off, could be used for more sinister purposes. The creation of designer bioweapons that can be engineered to kill groups of Americans or individuals. It is specifically tailored for that group. Well, there are now weapons under development and developed that are designed to target specific people. That's a quote from Representative Jason Crow, a Democrat from Colorado and member of the committee that oversees the Pentagon and U.S. intelligence community. He was speaking to the Aspen Security Forum back in July. Well, that's what this is, where you can actually take someone's DNA, you know, uh, their medical profile, and you can target a biological weapon uh, that will kill that person or take them off the battlefield or make them inseparable or inoperable. Hopefully they're not separable. And Americans are willingly and unwittingly playing along with these uh, potential assassination programs by paying companies to analyze their DNA and match it to others, he went on to say. Now, 
most people assume that the DNA they have sent off uh, is kept confidential, but not so much. Well, he goes on to say, you can't have a discussion about this without talking about privacy and commercial data and the protection of commercial data because expectations of privacy have degraded over the last 20 years. Young folks actually have very little expectations of privacy. That's what the polling and the data show. People will very rapidly spit into a cup and send it to 23andMe and get really interesting data about their background. And guess what? Their DNA is now owned by a private company. And it can be sold off with very little um, intellectual property protection or privacy protections. And we don't have legal and regulatory regimes that deal with it, at least not yet. That's the end of the quote. Well, who could um, procure this data? Foreign governments who use it in the development of -of state-of-the-art bioweapons, according to the representative a former U.S. Army Ranger. He says educating the nation about the dangers involved in sharing DNA information is of high importance. 23andMe, Ancestry, and other DNA enterprises insist the information they collect is not shared and remains safe and confidential. But some companies have supplied information to police upon request, according to the Daily Mail. The influential Scientific American magazine is doubtful, stating, is it possible, rather it is possible, Should it be possible to use the Internet to identify the owner of a snippet of genetic information? And it is getting easier day by day. Well, the idea that genetic information can be used for evil purposes has even hit Hollywood with a deadly biochemical weapon developed from DNA being used as a plot device in the James Bond spy movie, No Time to Die. Well, the Russian government is believed to be developing bioweapons. Uh, that's no surprise. After the Kremlin carried out a horrific series of murders and attempted murders in Europe against political opponents of President Vladimir Putin involving engineered poisons, engineered poisons. In 2018, three people in Salisbury, England, including ex-Russian double agent Sergei Skirpal, uh, they were injured after being exposed to a particular drug, a powerful nerve agent. In 2006, ex-Russian spy and Putin critic Alexander uh, Litvinenko, he was killed in London after his tea was spiked with a radioactive substance. Um, in 2004, Viktor Yushchenko, running against a pro-Russian candidate for Ukraine's uh, president, he was, in fact, targeted for this same kind of Um, nerve agent he fell ill was disfigured by a dioxin poison general richard clark head of the u.s military special operations command told the aspen conference that russia is willing to use bioweapons against political opponents they're willing to use them on their own soil but then to go into uh, the soil of a nato ally in the uk and use those and um, as we go into the future we have to be prepared for that eventuality And I don't think we talk about it as much as we should and look for methods to continue to combat it, end quote. Well, the danger posed by advanced chemical or biological weapons has worried the U.S. intelligence community in recent years, according to a Washington Examiner article. Last year, Senator Marco Rubio, Republican out of Florida, he sounded the alarm that Russian and Chinese labs were processing the DNA tests of Americans through Medicare and Medicaid. It's ridiculous that our current policies enable the Chinese Communist Party to access Americans' genetic data, Rubio said in a statement. There is absolutely no reason that Beijing, which routinely seeks to undermine U.S. national security, should be 
uh, handed the genetic or genomic data of American citizens, end quote. Well, the Department of Health and Human Services watchdog confirmed last year that the public health bureaucracy hadn't uh, taken potential security risks into account. The Washington Examiner reported that scientists might soon be able to create a biological weapon that could be used against a specific individual used the, using the victim's DNA. Well, technology like that could enable extremely targeted assassination programs while making it almost impossible to trace the assassinations. Well, similar technology could be used against U.S. agriculture by creating weapons that specifically target a certain type of farm animal or or produce that might cause starvation and bring down the U.S. in the face of hostile actions from a rival such as Russia or China. Now, this is speculative in terms of who would do the targeting, but the technology, well, we're beyond speculation there. Senator Johnny Ernst, or rather Joni Ernst, a Republican out of Iowa, she told the Aspen Forum highly uh, pathogenic avian influenza, uh, African swine fever, all of these things have circulated around the globe, but if targeted by an adversary, we know that it brings about food insecurity. Food insecurity drives a lot of other insecurities around the globe, Ernst, a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, went on to say. There are a number of ways we can look at biological weapons and the need to make sure not only we secure human beings, but then also the food that will sustain us. Uh, the senator went on to add that she believes food will be increasingly weaponized in the future, pointing to how Russia has weaponized food in its war in the Ukraine as an example. Just one more thing to think about as a possibility in the future, not only here in the U.S., but around the globe. Hmm. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Once again, we're out of time. Do want to remind you, though, that Pastor Wendell Robinson will join us. His book, Kingdom Moments, he's the new executive pastor at Mount Olivet Baptist Church, and he'll be joining us on the program. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.